Good Monday. This is Ozarks at Large for March 13th, 2023. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellams. As of today, more than 13,000 Arkansans have died from COVID-19, according to the Arkansas Department of Health. 70% of those Arkansans who died since February 2021 were not fully vaccinated against the disease. A recent study from the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences found that people in some communities, particularly the Hispanic and Marshallese communities in Arkansas, were more willing to get vaccinated at churches or faith-based organizations rather than a medical setting. Ozarks at Large's Rachel Sanchez-Smith spoke to Dr. Pearl McElfish, Division Director, Community Health and Research at UAMS, about the study's findings. We worked using a community-based participatory approach, which focused on asking community members what they felt would work best. Often as scientists, we think we know what will work best, but if if we're not really part of the community that we're working with, we may not know what will work best. And so we went first to the community and said, you know, we want to help people be vaccinated. What will work best? Just at the most simple level of of questions and really listen to the community. And from that, we heard that faith-based organizations were often a hub in both of the communities, not just for religious purposes, but also for community organizing purposes. This seems like such an obvious thing, but one of the first things that comes to mind for me, being part of the Hispanic community and also just, you know, interacting with the public is, of course, those faith-based organizations are always, even just on one level of language, are, you know, for sure going to be organizations and places where you can just speak somebody in your own language rather than facing the uncertainty of going somewhere else. And, you know, perhaps there isn't a translator or those resources aren't available. You're so, so true. And that as we dug deeper with our qualitative research and asked why did these organizations work, it was the availability of cultural and language access. And interestingly, we were very careful to ensure that there were bilingual people from the community that were at the clinic. So we provided cultural and language access, but people Many people don't expect to find that in a clinic. And so there, there's also the knowledge that if you go to a trusted community-based organization, if you go to your faith-based organization, you know, you, you, you've encountered both the language and the cultural access there before, so you're confident. I also think it's just around comfort. I, you know, this was a new vaccine and uh, speaking for myself, you know, I very much wanted to get the vaccine, but I was also a bit nervous and to, to be nervous about the vaccine and then go to a place that makes you nervous is two barriers. And that's exactly, I wanted to touch on that a part in the, the press release that we received, you know, detailing the information about the study said the study found that participants who received their vaccines at faith-based organizations were also more likely to trust the efficacy of the vaccine. Can you touch on that a little bit? That was a surprising finding because we actually hypothesized that we would be able to reach people who had less trust in the vaccine. But what we found was that that trust that they had in the faith-based organization or the community-based organization 
was actually transferred to their overall trust in that vaccine. And so, again, I think it it really speaks to the power of leveraging trusted community organizations such as as, as churches and faith based organizations. I'm curious if anything else in the study, you know, came as a surprise or things that you kind of instinctually fell from the get go. You know, this is what we might find. So what we found were that people who had a primary care provider or had higher access to care because of insurance were more likely to go to the clinic and trust the clinic and that people who did not have that relationship were more likely to trust the faith-based organizations. And again, I think that that is logical um, and that if we are really going to um, not just address COVID-19 vaccine, but flu vaccine and childhood vaccines, I think this two-pronged approach of making sure people have access to healthcare and are able to develop that relationship with the physician is critical and also leveraging faith-based organizations and community-based organizations to reach people. The ultimate message is not an either or, it is a pathway to, to both mechanisms working well. But in order to do that, we have to make sure that all community members have access to healthcare and have a relationship with healthcare providers. And we have to be willing to get outside the walls of our universities and outside the walls of our clinic to reach people where they are, which in many ways sounds, you know, ridiculously simple. And so it sounds odd to think, why do you need a research study to show that? But the truth is in in research and in clinical care, we often expect people to come to us. And given that, you know, as you and I do, many other people have jobs and kids and they're trying to get their kids to school and they may be working one or two jobs and up early in the morning, late at night. And so to expect people to come out outside of their normal day and go to an organization that they don't know and then wait in line and make an appointment and just all of those other encumbrances, it's really difficult to to reach many people in our community. And so our overarching message or results are the importance of partnering with faith-based organizations and community-based organizations and the importance of going where people are and not expecting people to come to you. You know, in your time doing this kind of public research, how often has your team used this approach or how you know popular is this approach to come to communities? Well, our team is fully committed to this. And so I have the honor of leading a team of about 150 people. Of that 150, more than Half of the members are part of the Marshallese or Hispanic community, and they are out in the community all the time. We have mobile units and really are fully committed to this idea that our responsibility as community health, public health, and healthcare providers is to go where people are, 
speak their language and do everything we possibly can to make them feel comfortable. And so there will always be times when someone's getting a mammography where they need to schedule an appointment and go to the doctor and that machine needs to be in in an office, although we do have mobile mammography units. So that may not have been the best analogy, but there are times where we absolutely have to go to a clinic. But I the overriding idea is meet people where they are, speak to people in the language that they're most comfortable, and don't let our own um, administrative healthcare burdens get in the way of helping people. Is there anything else you want to add in, or anything else you want to communicate to people or the public in this research, you know, this realm of COVID, vaccine efficacy, um, and your findings? I think there are two closing messages that I would love to give. One is the power of community health workers, whether you are doing vaccinations in a clinic or whether you're doing vaccinations in faith-based organizations or community-based organizations or some other healthcare outreach other than vaccination, having community health workers that are bilingual and understand the culture are the absolute single most important thing to our public health right now. And so really encourage all healthcare providers to integrate community health workers into their work. The second thing is that reaching everyone in our community and ensuring that everyone in our community has access to public health is the right thing to do, but it's also an important thing to do for our economy and for everyone. And so I think we often think about reaching that hard to reach person for them. And yes, it's important for that person. But when we think about the burden of chronic disease and the burden of infectious diseases, it is critical that we have a healthy population and that healthy population means all of us. Ozarks at Large's Rachel Sanchez-Smith spoke with Dr. Pearl McElfish, Division Director, Community Health and Research at UAMS. Ahead on our show, Randy Dixon from the Prior Center brings us audio from some of the special projects he worked on while a producer with KATV. Stand by for tornado warning. Tornado warning has just been issued for this thunderstorm cell that we have been following since 5.15 this afternoon. From the middle of a tornado to the middle of a war zone, ahead on today's program. The Momentary in Bentonville presents three-time Grammy Award-winning hip-hop group The Roots, live and in-person outdoors on the Momentary Green, April 29th. The band has been hailed by Rolling Stone as one of the greatest live acts in the world. Tickets on sale now at themomentary.org. This is Ozarks at Large and Powell Kellams. I'm Matthew Moore. KUAF and KUAF listeners do not live by news and information alone. That's very true. We provide other things, including classical music. Yes, that's right. Every evening, Sunday through Thursday, beginning at 8 on 91.3, you can listen to Peter Van de Graaff bringing us classical music. Yes, and tonight I happen to know that Peter's first hour will feature WC and uh, Massenet, so Mm -hmm. an hour of French classical music at least in the first hour from 8 until 9 tonight. Fantastic. And you can listen to classical music anytime on KUAF2. You can listen on your digital radio. You can listen on the KUAF app. You can ask your smart speaker to please play KUAF2, or you can go to KUAF.com and listen there. 
KUAF is your source for news and entertainment, both on the air and in your podcast feed. With podcasts like Ozarks at Large, Points of Departure, The Lunch Hour, and Undisciplined, you can rely on KUAF to bring you a diverse lineup of culture and news whenever you need it. Find our entire lineup of podcasts at KUAF.com slash podcast. The League of Women Voters of Arkansas and a Republican state senator are filing a lawsuit challenging legislation that will make it harder for citizen-led initiatives to get on a ballot. Republican Senator Brian King of Green Forest joined the league in a suit against Act 236. Two previous attempts to change the procedure for proposals in a ballot were defeated by voters. Act 236 does not require voter approval. In a press release from the League, Senator King writes the law was not passed in the best interest of Arkansans and will hamper grassroots efforts of Arkansans to propose their own laws and to hold the General Assembly accountable. David Couch, an attorney with considerable experience getting citizen-led proposals on the Arkansas ballot, is representing the League and Senator King. A bill that would end affirmative action in Arkansas made its way through the Senate late last week. Senate Bill 71 would prevent the state from granting preferential treatment based on race, sex, ethnicity, or national origin. Republican Senator Dan Sullivan called it a success-for-all bill that will help the state if the state begins to hire more teachers. And I'm so thankful that when we hire those high-performing teachers, that my school will be able, my schools will be able to hire teachers who are highly qualified, regardless of their race, regardless of their gender, regardless of all those qualifying factors. It will be success for every teacher and every student in our state. Senator Clark Tucker joined other Democrats in voicing opposition to the bill. He said the language was so broad it could bring an end to several state-funded services, such as the Minority Health Commission, Historically Black Colleges and Universities, the Women's Foundation, and the Mosaic Templars Cultural Center. The platitude on this bill is supposedly is that we're trying to end discrimination, but... But what I think the real message of this bill, if it passes, will be is that as far as we're concerned, racism and sexism in the United States are over. The bill passed on a vote of 18 to 12, with some Republicans voting against it. It now goes to the House for a vote and, if signed into law, will take two years to go into effect. Arkansas U.S. Senator John Bozeman is receiving the 2023 Congressional Award from the Veterans of Foreign Wars. A statement from the VFW cites the senator's commitment to America's veterans and demonstrated success expanding benefits and improving services they have earned. Residents living near the Upper Skull Creek in Fayetteville voiced their experiences with storm runoff in a forum last week. Twelve people attended the forum, including Molly Saxon. She has lived in her home for 30 years and says this past year, water seeped inside her house and left debris on her lawn. But you could see the next day, the aftermath, it just scoured where it where it came out of its banks, and you guys saw it, but of course it was several months after the fact, where it just scoured it, just cleared everything off. Michael Cockrum, an architect and property owner in the area, hosted the forum. The meeting covered what people experience in the area, focused on possible solutions and the large and small-scale actions for stormwater management implemented in other cities. To fund a price tag on services needed and how the city could best pay for the work, Fayetteville officials started a flood management and water quality funding study in 2018. Chris Brown, the city's public works director, says the problem is money. I can, I can speak in general about the, that study and the, the overall efforts to uh, 
uh, generate more funding for stormwater. I mean, that's really the issue if you really get down to it. Um, if we had all the money in the world, we could, we could fix these problems. The city completed construction on more underground storm drainage in the Upper Skull Creek area in May 2021. This project was paid through a bond voters passed in 2019. Two new NCAA National Championship trophies are coming to Fayetteville. Both the women's and men's indoor track teams claimed national titles this weekend in Albuquerque. The women clinched the championship in dramatic fashion, winning the 4x400 relay in the fastest time ever run breaking the previous world record set by the Russian national team in 2006. For the men, a highlight was Jaden Hibbert's only leap in the triple jump, an effort that simultaneously broke the national Jamaican record, the world under-20 record, and the previous school record set by Olympic gold medalist Mike Conley. The championships are the 42nd and 7th, respectively, for the men's and women's track and field programs at the University of Arkansas. The championships also give the athletic department 52 total, 7th most, by any NCAA Division I program. The Arkansas men's basketball team will play Illinois in the first round of the NCAA tournament Thursday afternoon in Des Moines. The Arkansas women are going to play in the women's NIT. The Razorback Gymnastics regular season is over after Friday's loss to Minnesota. That meet in Bud Walton Arena drew more than 8,200 fans, bringing this year's total home attendance to more than 36,000. That's a program record. Arkansas will next compete at the SEC Championships Saturday in Duluth, Georgia. Arkansas versus Illinois. I've gotten a handful of text messages from I'm folks. I'm sure you have since you're an, an Illinois. An Illinois native and, yeah. and a fan of the Fighting Illini. The Innovation Speaker Series continues tonight at the Fayetteville Public Library with rapper, filmmaker, and writer Boots Riley. Riley's band, The Coop, was a groundbreaking musical ensemble, and his directorial debut, Sorry to Bother You, has a 93% approval on Rotten Tomatoes. His absurdist television series, I'm a Virgo, will debut later this year. He was deeply involved with the Occupy Oakland movement and was one of the leaders of the activist group, The Young Comrades. Tonight's event is free and open to the public, and you can learn more at faylib.org. Stand by for tornado warning. Tornado warning has just been issued for this thunderstorm cell that we have been following since 5.15 this afternoon. Randy Dixon, you got us started with a pretty intense piece of archive there. Randy Dixon, who is with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral Visual History, is with me at the Carver Center for Radio. Welcome. Thank you very much. What did we just hear? Well, that was a portion of a special assignment report from 1992 from KTV, and um, it was some tornado chasing from the chief meteorologist, Ned Permy. It's, were you, what was your role with this? Well, I was the producer, and that's what this program is going to be. I, I was kind of hesitant to do it because it seemed a little self-serving, but I, what we're going to do is listen to a few of the special assignment reports that I happened to produce. And I just want listeners to know that I was the one who pushed for this. You didn't want to do it, and I said, no, I want to do it. So, Well, okay. So are you – so where are you when we're hearing this? Well, are I you, was driving oh my God. the car. So um, the, the our chief meteorologist wanted to do a thing on, on tornado chasing. So the producer kind of – does the logistics, sets everything up, and then after the report's over, sort of organizes all the material, oversees the editing of the piece, and sort of gives it the, the feel mm-hmm. of, um, of the report. 
so um, we had been in touch with the University of Oklahoma Norman, which is where the National uh, Weather Service experts are, and you you there's a major for meteorology right there, and we had been in touch with them for probably four or five months to find out when would be the best chances of severe weather tornadic activity would be taking place. So we were really rolling the dice on this, but... It sounds like you end up rolling the dice. Well, yes, and uh, getting hit by hail quite a bit. Uh-huh. And yeah, we got caught in, in a pretty serious storm, but we went to Norman, uh, Ned Permy, uh, photographer Sandy King and I, there was a group of three. And remember, this is 1992. So it was a big deal that we got this van and outfitted it with, you know, all the bells and whistles for weather. And we, and we could even see live radar, which is nothing now. You can see it on your phone, but to be able to drive around in a car and see it was a big deal. We picked up a couple of the weather experts started driving around and they're doing calculations and so long story short to set this up our chasers had calculated all right this is where we need to go and told us and i drive and we wind up in a dirt parking lot at an intersection near childress texas and lo and behold when we pull up there are already these guys standing around the parking lot, and then more people come. These are all tornado chasers from all over the region that had come up with the exact same estimation of where they needed to be. So we stood, and we waited, and we watched the sky for a couple of hours, and then, well, let's pick up the report from there. To the untrained eye, it looked like a very peaceful sky, but they saw something else. In about an hour, we saw just a couple of clouds beginning to build into what was about to be a big storm. So, the chase was on. Keep an eye on this. We knew which way the storm was moving, and the object is to stay ahead of it, then work your way behind the storm and observe it without getting caught in it. Whoa. 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 Okay, just, yeah, just pull off the side of the road if you can. The storm was beginning to grow in intensity and show signs of tornadic development. Right, well, All right, this thunderstorm here is about to produce some very large hail. It's also produced a wall, two wall clouds in it. So the decision's been made to continue to move. As we mapped our way around the storm, it continued to build. Rotation and circulation within the clouds became visible. This is known as a mesocyclone. The main difficulty in storm chasing is staying in proper position, and the roads don't always cooperate. You try to be as close as possible and avoid getting caught in the storm. Hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it. We've got large hail. Large hail. Trying to get so we can block this. Holy mackerel. Diamond quarter size hail. We were caught in the most dangerous part of the storm, losing daylight, low visibility, and wind rotation detected on Doppler radar at the Severe Storm Lab indicated not one, but possibly two tornadoes in our area. We turned around to get out, but soon hit another round of golf ball-sized hail, and nowhere to go. Right here. 
get back to that town. Let's get back to that town. Just ride it out. We need to find some sort of shelter here. Um, we might like want to pull up alongside here. We'll just have to wait it out here in as much shelter as we have. The sound of hail hitting is unmistakable. Well, if you hear somebody go, what? When he goes, we better get to a town. What? Yeah. Because that was me. I was driving. I didn't know what to do. I couldn't hear him. It was so loud in there from the hail. But we, uh, we had hit two sides of the storm and were basically in the middle and weren't sure which direction to go. So we, we found uh, an abandoned gas station with a, you know, some and sort of cover out. and we rode it out, like you said. How fast were you driving? To get to that not very that's I what mean, I th yeah, yeah you have to be very careful right. they actually said the only fatality at this point that had ever occurred in tornado chasers was the drive home mm. because of all the wind Debris, and rain yeah. and you know they drove off the road went into a ditch overturned and so it wasn't actually in a tornado right. it was after the fact all right that is not the most, uh, the scariest, I'm going to guess, based on what I know about what we're going to talk about. That's not the scariest special reporting you've done. No, no. This next one was, uh, maybe you could even say a little stupid, mm. for uh, a TV crew from Little Rock, Arkansas, to take on something like this. But it was, it was an amazing opportunity, a story we thought was important to tell. But in 1993, uh, our anchor and reporter, Gina Curry, had gone to a Rotary Club meeting, and she heard uh, a lady, Kathy Wells, from a group called the National Organization for Victims Assistance, or NOVA, and they counsel victims of crime and crisis, particularly rape victims. And she had been to Bosnia. This was during the Balkans War, Bosnia-Herzegovina and uh, Croatia. And so Gina said, well, the next time you go, if you go, I'd like to try to go with you. So she came to me, and they were going, a group of Arkansans mm -hmm. were going, Arkansas women. And uh, so I started working on a budget and— somehow sold it to our boss, uh, Jim Pitcock, and um, we went to Bosnia. Uh, Larry Potter, our photographer, and Gina and I hopped on a plane, and um, we first flew into Croatia mm -hmm. and stayed at a refugee hotel. The worst part was they lost our luggage along with all of our equipment. Oh, my. And we sat and determined that it had been sent to Germany by mistake. And when they saw the big metal anvil cases, they thought perhaps it was a bomb. Oh so gosh. it went into a bomb shelter for two days. So we were stuck without our luggage or our equipment for a couple of days. And that was a whole other headache in itself. But um, we traveled from and this was in the middle of the night from Croatia to cross the border into Bosnia and we weren't even sure they were going to let us pass. Uh, Gina reminded me that we reached one checkpoint. There were several checkpoints but as we were starting to reach one the driver interpreter said 
whatever you do, don't tell them you're journalists. Tell them you're Christians uh, on a mission work. Good Lord. And so we got through and— You're heading into a war zone. Yes. Okay. And, uh, well— Let's hear a part of her report. Before it unraveled two years ago, three ethnic groups, the Serbs, the Croats, and the Muslims, lived together in harmony. They were held up as a shining example for the rest of the world. The little boy whose father and brother were, were killed by a sniper, and the mother is very, very ill. Uh, I would like to talk to him. I followed a small group of brave women, two of which are from Arkansas, who are risking their lives to carry out a mission to heal the wounds of the soul. While the systematic rape of thousands of Muslim and Croatian women and children is extraordinary in scope and brutality, other war crimes are equally outrageous. We were within, when, when we stayed in a town uh, called Medjugorje, which was uh, actually a, a Haven. It was a, a spot for uh, a religious center uh, for Christians to go, Catholics to, to go and worship. But we stayed there in sort of a makeshift uh, motel. It was more like a bed and breakfast with several rooms around a courtyard. And they, uh, we were within a couple of miles, probably th four to five miles. Mm -hmm. And they always told us to keep to sleep in your clothes and keep your bags packed with your shoes by the door. So if we got the word to leave, we could leave within a matter of seconds. One evening when we were there, Gina was going to interview, um, her name's Peggy Stanton, um, and we set up a little area in this open courtyard, and we did have to have some lights on, uh, which made us nervous. But to shoot a TV interview, you got to have lights. So we had set up limited lights, and we're doing this interview, and that's when we got quite a, quite a scare. Peggy Stanton, a former ABC correspondent in Washington, was first drawn here several years ago. She raised the money for the team to come. What better way to destroy that goodness that was happening here was than to start a war and encircle this place with war so that people would be afraid to come. What are you doing here and, and, and what do you hope to Talk about on cue. That could be... Uh, Croatians enjoying themselves. Think we need to turn these lights out. Yeah, let's kill them. I. Gentlemen. Okay. How do you turn them? I'm not sure. Now, one minute it could be. They could be. Yeah, it might not be anything serious other than the Croatians letting off a little steam. The next morning, we learned those shots were fired two houses away where we stayed in Magigori. Some Croatian soldiers had just returned home from the front line and were celebrating that they were still alive. We actually... Um brought 
our own flak jackets. Of course, I that hope we you, borrowed yeah. from the Little Rock Police Department. And when the fire started, we ran into a room and you know put those put those on us. Mm. Um, now you talked to Gina recently. Yes, just last night about this. Yes, you know, gosh, thinking about it, it was thirty years ago that we did this, but. Just the two of us talking about, you know, one would remember something mm. that, you know, I had forgotten or I would remember something she had forgotten. But, um, you know, it it really hit home um, when we stayed in the press hotel. This was after we had been in Bosnia and we were coming back. We stayed in Croatia at a press hotel and there was a bulletin board that had names of people, journalists, that were missing. And so this was one of the things that Gene and I talked about. I remember seeing, like on the bulletin board, there would be, you know, last seen on such and such a date, Reader's Digest reporter, blah, blah, blah. If you'd seen him, contact, whatever. And uh, so there, you know, when you're in a war zone, you just, if you've never been there, you just can't, you don't have any idea what it feels like. Um, everything is unpredictable and uncertain, especially in that kind of a war. They, it wasn't really a civil war, but it but it, from all intents and purposes, it it, it was. Um, and uh, everything is so unpredictable. You don't really know where the front lines are. You had soldiers just coming into small communities and rounding up the boys and men and who would be found later in mass graves. And then many of the women would wind up in rape camps and their village burned down. But I just, I just remember the trauma counselors talking to us and saying, you know, back home, this is what we do. We listen to people's trauma stories all day long. And over here, just the volume of people who have been traumatized and the types of trauma that they've been through really was difficult for the U.S. counselors, um, just the volume of it. They were um, they were really rocked back on their heels, I think. Uh, who, you know, how do you prepare for that? You, you know, you, you don't. And they're, they're counselors. They... They do it for a living, but to see that number of people that traumatized, and I just always would think about the future. Oh my goodness, what is um, how how does this work out in the future, where these people are going to be um, mentally, psychologically healthy? She's living in St. Louis now, and she herself now is a hospice volunteer, mm. which she counsels people in in distress which is a lot of what these nova wow. uh folks were doing right yeah interesting you also went to peru yes and that that was uh a trying uh assignment too um ktv has had a long relationship with uh winrock international that's the arkansas-based nonprofit. i think they have uh 40 offices around the world in, in different impoverished 
countries. Uh, you know, it's named after Winthrop Rockefeller, mm-hmm. and uh, they, you know, work with these nations on you know agriculture, environment, economic, and social issues. And so, reporter Steve Powell and photographer Tim Hamilton and I went to Peru, where their biggest problem is the production of cocaine. Mm. And uh, cocaine is produced from the coca plant. It looks like just a little shrub you might have in your front yard, but um, it it makes a powerful drug. And so the, the drug lords there uh, force the farmers to grow coca. And what Winrock was doing was trying to teach them alternatives uh, that they could make as much money as they were making to, to coffee or pineapples or something, co- cocoa instead mm-hmm. of coca. Uh, but here's a portion of Steve's report. And it's not just coca's profit potential that Winrock must combat. It is a decade reign of terror when this part of Peru was ruled by narco-traffickers. Dr. Sher Plunkett is a Fort Smith native who works for USAID, a government agency coordinating groups like Winrock. He says these drug terrorists gave farmers just two options. The way the, the narco-traffickers approached them, they said, go coca and we'll give you something for it. And oh, by the way, if you don't grow it, we'll kill you. They were true to their word. There is hardly anyone left here over the age of 30. The drug terrorists murdered the adults and stole the children. Farmer Felipe Hudman tries to forget. The terrorists came with uh, in, in groups of 50 and 40 people with guns, no? And they killed the people, the farmers, no? Was a, was, he says, horrible, and he lost uh, two, two brothers. You've got one here that I think a lot of people here will be familiar with, because I actually uh, interviewed, I didn't go to, I did it by satellite, she was on fat satellite phone, but Julia Butterfly Hill. Yes. She uh, was an activist who staged what they called an aggressive tree sit in Northern California, and it was a redwood tree that she had named Luna, mm-hmm. and uh, it was to prevent the lumber company from cutting it down. Now, imagine this is on top of a mountain, and she is a hundred... Northern California. Northern California in a huge redwood forest, and she is 100 and feet, 180 feet up on a basically a platform with a tent. And she, <laughs> she lived up there for more than two years. She was up there, to be exact... 738 days. Wow. So you've talked to her. I talked to her from that platform. She um, would communicate with a satellite phone before right. cell phones were really reliable enough. And so, yeah, we did an interview sometime. See, I've that- been trying to get a hold of her to, to follow up mm-hmm. so you and I could do a segment just on her mm-hmm. and talk to the reporter, Justin Acri, who went, who uh, he and uh, – Photographer Scott Munsell had to. They, did they go up? Oh yeah, hundred <laughs> feet. Did you? No, they they could only fit two people oh, on damn. the platform. <laughs> I know, so I had to stay down. But and I tied the camera. It was a single rope that you had to go up, and I tied the camera to the rope, and they pulled it up so they could do the interview. Mm. 
The time comes to make our way up Luna and finally meet the person who's become a symbol of inspiration for those trying to save what remains of the old growth forest. She communicates with the outside world by cell phone and uses a two-way radio to talk to visitors. Trust the gear, get a rhythm, and if you start feeling airy, just look at the tree. Sounds simple enough. Okay, thanks. That's just an extra... Spruce explains how to use the equipment that will help us up a single rope to what is essentially Hill's living room, 100 feet above the forest floor. The climb takes me about 45 minutes, but not without a struggle. Photographer Scott Munsell makes the ascent considerably quicker, and soon we're face to face with Hill. She's barefoot and comfortable on her 6x8 platform. She tells us of a 1997 trip to the area when she was so moved that she returned to Arkansas, sold all of her belongings, and quickly returned west. I came up here because this incredible over 1,000-year-old tree was going to be destroyed. 3% every single tree is vital. I stayed because I wanted to make the world aware. And I wanted the world to be aware of how crazy what's happening here is. If I'm willing to put my life on the line in this way, something really serious has got to be happening. These are also pieces that are in the archives at the prior center. Well, as a matter of fact, if you want to watch all of them, we have, we have a special place go to the prior center just google mm -hmm. google prior center p-r-y-o-r um and go to the k-a-t-v section and click on special assignment and you can watch all these reports mm. uh, as they aired on k-a-t-v um in their entirety randy dixon is with the david and barbara prior center for arkansas oral visual history more adventures next week thank you randy thank you Trike Theater, Rave Cultural Foundation, and Dirina Dance present The Jungle Book at Walton Arts Center March 25th at 4 p.m. This original adaptation mixes theatrical storytelling with classical Indian dance, featuring NWA youth actors and dancers amid professional adult actors. Tickets and more at waltonartscenter.org. Tomorrow, on a Tuesday edition of Ozarks at Large, Roberta Lee decided in her 30s when she was a teacher, to put everything into becoming a singer-songwriter. I say this all the time. I had that kind of conversation with my 80-year-old self, and I just wanted to make sure she wouldn't be mad at me mm. at the fact that I didn't try. So I promised my 80-year-old self, I said, I'm going to try, and we're going to see if this works. Her critically acclaimed records and enthusiastic endorsement from the Black Opry indicates she made the right choice. When she visited the University of Arkansas last month, she also came to the Carver Center for Public Radio. That's tomorrow on Ozarks at Large at noon and at 7. And you can also find us at OzarksAtLarge.com. From Little Rock, I'm Stephen Cook with Arkansas. Black Oak, Arkansas took its name from the community in eastern Craighead County and made its name largely through its live act, which included a triple guitar attack, a blistering rhythm section, and of course, the guttural howl of the band's swaggering, washboard-wheeling singer Jim Dandy Mangrum, one of rock's greatest frontmen. Playing a grueling schedule of hundreds of dates a year, the band was one of the top-grossing touring acts of the 1970s. 
Amidst all this carnage, easily overlooked is Black Oak, Arkansas's softer side. It's a tantalizing yet small chapter of the band's canon, often neglected by the band itself. Heard here from its 1971 debut album is Memories at the Window, which shows Mangrum's seldom-heard balladry. Hills of Arkansas, Uncle Elijah, and the band's cover of Drasco, Arkansas native Melvin Inslee singing the blues from the album are also softer, but still feature Mangrum's trademark rasp. Black Oak, Arkansas could become the new Rolling Stones, concluded Rolling Stone magazine in its record review. Produced by Lee Dorman and Mike Panera of the band Iron Butterfly, Black Oak, Arkansas, however, would never again embrace its folk and country influences as fully as it did on its first album. In fact, Black Oak, Arkansas dispensed with the acoustic guitars, Crittenden County native Harvey Jett's banjo, and Craighead County native Stanley Knight's pedal steel altogether on its 1972 sophomore album, Keep the Faith, produced by the band. But they returned somewhat with Black Oak's third record, the Tom Dowd produced, If an Angel Came to See You, Would You Make Her Feel at Home, also from 1972. Heard here from that album is Fertile Woman, which highlights the lyrical bass playing, Pat Darty, and the band's effective use of backing and acapella vocals, also used on other Black Oak songs like In Our Mind's Eye and the band's version of Dixie. Thanks to the looser, progressive playlists of the album rock era, Black Oak, Arkansas got some radio airplay and deeper cuts like Hot and Nasty and Lord Have Mercy on My Soul. But Black Oak, Arkansas's biggest radio and chart success came with its 1973 cover of Laverne Baker's 1956 hit, Jim Dandy to the Rescue, which broke the top 25. Its next biggest chart hit actually came with the ballad, Strong Enough to be Gentle, from the band's 1975 album X-Rated, which reached number 89 on the charts. I woke up one morning to a world that was great. Sunshine was gone and the birds had flown away. Black Oak, Arkansas's most successful album was 1973's High on the Hog, thanks to the inclusion of the song Jim Dandy, but other songs from the album, like High and Dry and Back to the Land, refute those who consider the band one-dimensionally heavy, even if a lot of that is the band's own doing. Oak, Arkansas would continue to record additional folk and country-inflected music, like Everybody Wants to See Heaven, Nobody Wants to Die, Sweet Delta Water, The Snake, and Digging for Gold. It would also continue to redefine and refine its sound, adding a keyboard player and adding female vocalist Ruby Starr. The band's Capricorn releases from the mid-1970s particularly saw Black Oak smooth out its sound, even including Mangrum's vocals. And while it all disproved that the public preferred Black Oak, Arkansas's hot and nasty raunch and roll over the band's lighter fare, the small window into the band's softer side offers a glimpse into what could have been. Showcasing the band's softer side, here in its entirety, is High and Dry from Black Oak, Arkansas's album High on the Hog from 1973. When the water is rising, tell me where you're gonna go, when the dams are all busting and it's flooding down below And the rushing of the river tells you there's no place to hide You'll be hiding right here 
Black Oak, Arkansas's 1973 album, High on the Hog. It's another song of Arkansas. From Little Rock, I'm Stephen Cook with Arkansas. Arkansas is a production of Experiment Station Studios. Producer is Keith Merckx. Arkansas since 1998. Okay, Matthew Moore. Yes, Kyle we are that. <laughs> we are in that time of year. Although I'm not sure there isn't this kind of year, time of year anymore in northwest Arkansas, the Arkansas River Valley. But we're seriously at that time of year where everyone is doing something. We're ramping up. It's time to time to go do some things. Get out of the house. All right. So here is a warning. No, not a warning. That's too negative. Here is a reminder. A reminder. Of some of the things that are happening in the next 24 hours. The Black Mu- Music Symposium is at the University of Arkansas. Mm-hmm. And you're going to say, wait, Kyle, didn't you tell me about that? Last month. Wait, Kyle, didn't you tell me about that last month? I did, but if you also recall about last month, there was a lot of snow and ice. and so, A lot of inclement weather. Right. So a lot of things got postponed, including events connected to the Black Music Symposium at the University of Arkansas. So those events that were postponed are happening now. Uh, so the symposium will go through to, from tomorrow through the 16th. First up, free public concert at Central United Methodist Church in Fayetteville with Nathaniel Gums, who is the director of chapel at Yale University. Fantastic. Yeah. So that's tomorrow night. Uh And then there are other events that will continue Wednesday and Thursday. Right. Uh, Tomorrow, XNA, Northwest Arkansas National Airport, will break ground for Terminal Modernization Project. Okay. And that's all I really know about Okay. It. It's happening tomorrow afternoon. They're going to modernize the terminal. Do you know the last time that I flew into or out of XNA? I do not. I don't know why you would know that. I... <laughs> it was almost three years ago to the day. Oh, you went to New York, did I you was not? In New, yeah. I was in New York, uh, and I was just on the tail end of being able to do things prior to COVID-19. I've only flown in since from Nashville on a one-way mm. since then. I yeah. uh, hope they keep the, the moving walkway. Yeah, I The I only one in do. the state. There you go. I'll find out if that stays as part of this project. (laughs) Thank you. Also, the Northwest Arkansas Community College Career Fair is tomorrow from 10 until 1. Going to be on the first floors of NWAC Shoemaker Center for Workforce Technology and the Shoemaker Center for Global Business Development. Basically, you look for a building that says Shoemaker, Mm -hmm. I think, go in. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Uh, A press release said that they will have full-time, part-time, and internships available. Fantastic. They're also going to have resume help. You can go to a station for that or career uh, coaching. And this is open to everybody. You don't have to be an NWAC student or alum or connected. I love that. Fantastic. NWAC does a lot of really great, meaningful work in our community. And so if you're interested in this, and again, it's 10 to 1 tomorrow on the first floors of the Shoemaker Centers, uh, go to NWAC, 
webpage, and there's a form for community members to fill out. And it kind of tells you what to expect, and mm-hmm. and so you can line up. But that's tomorrow at, on campus at Northwest Arkansas Community College in Bentonville. Entries are still open for NPR's annual Tiny Desk Contest. The 2023 contest is open to all unsigned musicians through March 13th. All you need is an original song, a video of you performing it, and a desk. For the full list of entry rules and to see both current and past entries, go to tinydeskcontest.npr.org. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Springdale, and Bonanza. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. And, as Sophie just told us, tonight is it for the Tiny Desk submissions. That's right. It's now or never. And I, I don't know if it's midnight. It's probably 11 Eastern. So mm-hmm. if you've been meaning you know, to do it, do it. Just got to find a desk. That's right. Uh, Matthew produced today's show in the friendly confines of the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. I'm glad it's friendly. Yeah. Contributors today included Rachel Sanchez-Smith, Randy Dixon, and Stephen Cook. Ryan Versi is our underwriting director here at KUAF. If you're interested in underwriting, send him an email. Ryan at KUAF.com. Watch the Oscars last night? I did watch the Oscars last night. I thought it was very warm and emotional. And uh, I loved when Jamie Lee Curtis said... Thanks to all the people who go to the genre movies who yeah. give so many of us our start. The thing that really stuck out to me, p- perhaps because I'm a, a expecting parent, is so much gratitude towards parents. Yep. Yep. Really, really nice to see a lot of great stories in that way. Now i got to see some of the movies. That's right. All right. We are back with you tomorrow at noon and 7 right here on 91.3 KUAF from the Carver Center for Public Radio. I'm Kyle Kellums. I'm Matthew Moore.